as someone who who believes in nonviolence as a tactic, I'm always um, even more so caught in a conflict around the, the sense of, of nonviolence as a tactic seems to denote that um, our white counterparts are going to be moved with empathy by our suffering. And after 40 to 50 years now of a, of a, the way in which violence has been normalized in this country because of, of technology and the way in which people are, are seeing violence and desensitized to it and, and the way in which now folks are looking at, at black women and men and brown women and men being, you know, rapid fire being destroyed, shot, brutalized on a rapid basis every 45 seconds on their phone. Um, I, I, I am sometimes find myself in an internal war of how do we stay committed to nonviolence as a tactic to ensure is it still a tactic that can bring about freedom, safety. Bring out your little gun and shoot. No, 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 that's not what I'm no, I What you just heard is a discussion between Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, the longtime civil rights activist and member of the Little Rock Nine, and Ben McBride, founder of the Empower Initiative. Both believe in and teach the principles of nonviolence, but you can hear the tension between the civil rights veteran and her counterpart in the next generation. It was a tension that existed at the height of the movement. As the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. preached nonviolence, the Black Panther Party and the Black Power movements were emerging, pursuing a more confrontational path to equality. That tension remains as new generations of activists undergo their own examination of the paths to change. But at the civil rights retreat at Sunnylands in California this January, the veterans were steadfast in their belief partly because of the experiences they endured that bonded them to the philosophy in the first place. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Voices of the Movement, a series from my podcast, Cape Up, sharing the stories and lessons of some of the leaders of the civil rights movement and using them to figure out where we go from here. McBride's philosophical dilemma and Brown Tricky's five decades of certainty demonstrate the tension that has always been there within the movement, then and now. It was interesting to me that one of the places where people saw a discongruity was on nonviolence. Taylor Branch, who we heard from in the Letter from a Birmingham Jail episode, is the author of Parting the Waters and two other books that comprise his authoritative trilogy on the civil rights movement and America in the King years. I talked to him at Sunnylands after the group discussion where McBride and Brown Tricky clashed. Immediately went after, out after the discussion and, and talked to some of the interns here who weren't in any of these sessions and they're not even coming here. They just work here. And I said, do you mind if I ask you, what, the, what does the word nonviolence mean to you? 
Uh, what's your association with it? And all of them, these are like 19-year-olds, they all said, it's the way you should be. It, it's a way of making your protest have the possibility of having an effect because no matter what your cause is, if you're violent, people will dismiss it and they won't even hear it. And I was impressed. I think maybe we might be, even though it's not in the discussion, it's not part of the movement. You don't have people like Martin Luther King preaching about nonviolence now. You don't hear it out of the Black Lives Matter movement or the Parkland movement or, or the Occupy Wall Street. None of those movements talks about nonviolence the way Dr. King did. I'm not so sure that we are right to presume that younger people aren't fertile to discuss it if, if, if you did hear it because uh, nonviolence is so, so central. Using nonviolence as a tool for social change is not something that King introduced to the world. He learned it from the writings of philosopher Henry David Thoreau and the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi of India. They were a great influence on King in late 1955 as he led the year-long Montgomery bus boycott by African Americans in Alabama's capital city. The success of that protest catapulted King to the forefront of the nascent civil rights movement and it's what pushed King to travel to India to learn more. And he went over there to find out about it and came back saying, the Gandhians are all over the place about nonviolence. Half of them are, are fast all the time, and the other half don't want to step on insects. And then there's Nehru, the epitome of nonviolence. He's building a nuclear bomb for India, you know, because of Pakistan. So the Indians are all over the place. We have to develop our own nonviolence because we're a minority in this country. And the only thing that we have going for us is we have a little bit of Christianity. And he says, essentially, if you study dem democracy and we claim to be Democrats, all of democracy is built on a vote and a vote is nothing but a nonviolent. So we're trying to get people to 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 expand their their commitment to decide things by votes. You know, and it's a great thing that we don't have wars after every election. You know, no matter how unpalatable the the candidate, the winners are to one side or another, we accept the result of the votes, and that's nonviolence. You know, it's, it's working. So Dr. King came back and said, we need to forge our own. In King's books, he refers to these early years in the movement as his pilgrimage to nonviolence. In an earlier interview with Cape Up, Congressman John Lewis described the philosophy King found through that pilgrimage. We studied the teaching of Gandhi, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Thoreau. And around that time, a little comic book came out. It was called Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story. Dr. King had edited this little book. It was 16 pages. It sold for 10 cents. It became like our guide. And we became imbued with the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. We have what we call role playing or social drama. You have black and white college students, some high school students that would meet every Tuesday night in this Fish University campus in a little Methodist church. And we study and study. And then we had what we call tested ends, where a group of black and white students would go to a little restaurant or go to a little place where they had a lunch counter and just sit to establish the fact that these places will refuse to serve 
or interracial group. And then we started sitting in on a regular basis after this sit-in started in Greensboro, North Carolina. We'd be sitting there in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion, waiting to be served, and someone would come up and spit on us or put a lighted cigarette out in our hair or down our backs, pour hot water, hot coffee, hot chocolate on us, pull us off the stool and start beating us, stomping us. And we would try to look straight ahead without saying a word. And then we were told over and over again, if we continue to sit in, we'd be arrested and we would be taken to jail. And I will never, never forget it as long as I live. One day, when a group of us went down to sit in, student from Fish University, Tennessee State, Mahara Medical College, American Baptist Seminary, Vanderbilt, Peabody, we'd be sitting there. Then we were ordered to get up, and we would just stay sitting. Then we were placed under arrest. But before being arrested, if I were going to get arrested, I wanted to look good. I wanted to look clean. I wanted to look fresh. I wanted to look sharp. So I went downtown Nashville and bought a new suit. It was a used suit. And I paid $5 for this suit. And the day I got arrested, I did look clean and fresh and sharp. And I felt so free. I felt so liberated. And I have not looked back since. You felt so free and so liberated being arrested. Yes. Why? Because people have said, we're going to arrest you. We're going to take you to jail. And somehow, in some way, we broke that chain. That it's okay to get arrested and go to jail for something that is right and fair and just. As committed as King and Lewis were to nonviolence, it still wasn't something that was blindly accepted by those who worked in the movement. Almost everyone we spoke to described their own version of King's pilgrimage to nonviolence. The two lessons I think I learned on that first day with all that was I'll never be a hater for any reason. You can't, I don't think you could make me hate. After meeting Jean Brown Tricky's tense interaction with Ben McBride, I spoke with her about how she came to be so committed to nonviolence. She tells her full story in an earlier episode of this series, but she's one of the Little Rock Nine who integrated Central High School in the Arkansas capital in 1957. What she learned from that searing experience still guides her today. That was my training right there. The, the violence trained me to be nonviolent. And that, maybe that's how we have to think about it. We live in a vi- violent society, so what else are we supposed to do? What kind of value can we have if we live in a deeply violent world? There's only one, one place to be. Well, what is our touchstone? I mean, so a lot of people, it's religion. Maybe, maybe that does it for some people. But what is your, how do you know who you are? What is our touchstone if it's not nonviolence? And it just, it just includes everything. It includes relationships with people, relationships 
with the earth. It, it just includes everything. So why not? When you're being hated so brutally, you got to have something inside that says, whoever you are, that's not me. And so one of the things I talk to young people about is sometimes you think you're mad, but you're not, you're sad. And, and how your response to sadness is different from a response to anger. And so to constantly try to hone that response to be um, thoughtful and thorough and not, you know, learn stuff so that I don't just shoot off, right? So those are the kinds of things when I, when I, what if I could tell young people what I would like for them to do is a good, thorough training in nonviolence because it opens up a lot of possibilities for us. Not everyone's personal pilgrimage led to such certainty. Diane Nash was a leader of the civil rights movement, a prime architect of some of its most powerful efforts. Among other things, she was a co-founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. And according to Taylor Branch, she struggled with the philosophy of nonviolence. Even Diane Nash said, who was one of the great uh, expounders and theoreticians of nonviolence, she advanced it in the Freedom Rides. It was her idea to use those children in, in Birmingham. Uh, it, it was her idea after the church bombing. She presented what became the blueprint for the Selma movement as the epitome of kind of nonviolence. Even she abandoned it and said uh, in the late 60s, if we did all this by nonviolence, think what we could do if I was willing to knock over a few <laughs> banks <laughs> and become a gorilla and stuff like that. But, and later she said, and we'll tell you today, Ten years later, I looked up and I hadn't knocked over any banks and I wasn't a gorilla or anything. I just disengaged from, from the difficulties of the nonviolent movement, meaning that you're willing to die but not to kill for these principles uh, behind a lot of noise about being violent and I'm really tough and I'm, I'm virile. Even King struggled with the concept of nonviolence. Branch wrote about how even in the very last days of King's life, the leader was depressed because he wasn't sure if the answer to racism could be found in nonviolence. Nevertheless, King always did his best to teach the philosophy and lead by example, even when people disagreed with him. You know, one of the most um, amazing interviews I did over all the years I was doing this was with Stokely Carmichael about his arguments with Dr. King on nonviolence. Stokely Carmichael was a young activist when he became chairman of SNCC, but... Frustrated with the slow pace of progress, Carmichael broke off and began touting black separatism. The mantra black power, he coined that phrase. They were during the Meredith March in the summer of 66. They were marching through Mississippi. It was a long march. And Stokely had proclaimed black power on that march, and it, and it took off like a firestorm, especially in the media, because it had the frisson of violence. So they were marching along discussing... Um, Dr. King talking about his reservations and Stokely talking about why is it that America admires nonviolence only in black folks? 
You know, we're the ones who have to be nonviolent. I've been going to jail for six years, and now you're saying I need to be nonviolent and invite more suffering on me to get white people to do what they should have done in the first place. That's not fair. And Stokely said, Dr. King would say, of course that's not fair. Stokely, I know what you've been doing. I know what you've been going through. All I'm trying to get you to see is that nonviolence is a leadership doctrine. We're ahead of the rest of this country. We're trying to move it so that it so that it accepts votes and common culture as a way of solving things. That's leadership. If we accept violence, we're not catching up with white people. We're dropping back to white people. I'm just trying. And, you know, that's a very profound um, debate. As we heard earlier, it's a debate still being had today. Yet most of those who practice nonviolence in the movement of the 1950s and 60s remain steadfast in their devotion today. That's because they bore witness to its short-term and long-term results. Again, in this series, we come to Andrew Young, the chief strategist of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Can I just tell one story right quick? When Martin went to jail with Ralph Abernathy in Albany, Georgia, I'd never been involved in the movement. I just got there, and I had to go in and see him every day. So I go in there, and there's this big sergeant behind the desk, white. And I said, excuse me, sir, I'd like to see Dr. King. He didn't even look up. He said, there's a little nigga out there that wants to see them big niggas back there. What do I do? I said, oh, shucks. <laughs> he said, send him back. So I went back and I told Martin and Ralph, you know what he said to me? Martin said, I don't care what he said to you. You've got to get in here every day and give me a report on what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Ralph said, why don't you jump across the desk and slap him? I said, he's bigger than me and he's got a stick and a gun. It just took that to bring me to my senses. When I went back out, I said, wait a minute, if I got to come in here every day, I said, saw his name. And I said, thank you very much, Sergeant Hamilton. I'll see you tomorrow. And I left. When I came back in the next day, I said, Sergeant Hamilton, how you doing today? And I said, you must have played football somewhere. And he set up and we started, he went to Valdosta State, played tackle. We talked about football for about three minutes and I said, can I see Dr. King? Yeah, go on back. So when I came back out, I mean, every day like that for about 10 days, it didn't take but two minutes just calling his name and we became friends rather than police and scared Negro. Long story short, I go to the UN and I'm up in Maine speaking and who comes up to see me but this tall, no longer fat, <laughs> tall and skinny. i got a green jacket with white Flat, uh, pants and white buck shoes. I mean, a New England playboy. And he comes up and says, you don't remember me, do you? I said, where did we meet? He said, no, I've been in jail. I said, huh? He said, I'm Sergeant Hamilton. I said, what are you doing up here? He said, as soon as you left, I realized I didn't want my children to grow up that way. And I put them all in the back of my station wagon, and I found a job up here as a security guard. And I said, well, how are you kids doing now? 
He said, I didn't some of the finest schools in New England. He said, I just came here tonight to thank you. See? Now, I can probably find, you know, several hundred situations like that. Now, I didn't come to nonviolence here for nonviolence. I just ended up in the middle of this. But I mean, I've never been in any place, in any situation, where violence would have helped me more than thoughtful nonviolence. Coming up on Voices of the Movement, the final episode, Passing the Baton, Where Do We Go From Here? 